people that are living in families with a lot of chronic illness are really dealing with so much more than you ever think about. So some of the things that can help are first and foremost, remembering that self-care is not selfish. And so I have this quote that I say to a lot of my patients who are having a hard time with taking care of themselves because they're worried about their aging parents. And it's not my quote, but I got it somewhere and I say it. It is, you're not actually required to set yourself on fire to keep others warm. I'm Dr. Regina Kemp. I'm a board certified clinical psychologist and I specialize with older adults and families. I created the Psychology of Aging podcast to answer some of the most common questions I get about aging. Questions about mental health and wellness, changes in the brain, like with dementia, relationships and sex, caregiving, and even end of life. Like I say in my therapy groups, no topic is off topic. We just have to have a healthy way of talking about it. So if you're an older adult or caring for one, you're in the right place. Let's get started. When we talk about caregivers, we often think that caregivers are super healthy, but there are actually quite a lot of caregivers with chronic and life-threatening illnesses themselves and are in the role of caring for a loved one with a chronic and life-threatening illness. So today, I invited my dear friend, Dr. Candy Schmidt, on the podcast to share her wisdom about this really, really complicated situation of caring for an older loved one when you yourself have a chronic or life-threatening illness. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Schmidt. Dr. Candy Schmidt is the Director of Transplant Behavioral Health at Emory University School of Medicine and is an Assistant Professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Emory University School of Medicine. Dr. Schmidt specializes in the assessment and care of organ transplant patients and working with patients and their caregivers across solid organ groups, including heart, liver, lung, kidney, as well as with living donors. She's also co-chair of the Patient and Family Advisory Council of the Emory Transplant Center, which works to ease the journey of the patient and family navigating the transplant experience through education, communication, advocacy, and collaboration. Now that you know who Dr. Schmidt is, Let's jump right into the interview. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show to talk about uh, caring for aging parents. You offer such a unique perspective in caring for aging parents because you work with a group of folks who have probably been cared for by their parents for much of their life and then now might be in a position of caring for their parents but also having pretty significant medical needs of their own. So can you talk a little bit about who you, um, what you do and who you provide services for? Yes. So I work at the Emory Organ Transplant Center with patients who are seeking or have received solid organ transplants, which covers kidney, liver, lung, and heart, or kidney pancreas. 
and I work primarily with um, adults and some young adults who are transitioning from CHOA, but all of them have struggled with coping with chronic illnesses throughout their life and have either received transplant or need a transplant. And so what has the role of their parents providing care for them throughout their life been? What's that typically look like? So many of the my patients were diagnosed at some point during their childhood or adolescence, early adulthood. And so their parents were ultimately caregivers for them throughout the journey of their illnesses. And this often extended well beyond the normal caretaking age for adult children because of the chronic illnesses. So many of the patients that I see have um, been dependent on their parents much well into adulthood in a lot of different ways. Some of them ended up living with them for a long time. Some of them are well into their 50s and still live with their parents or rely on them for financial support if they weren't able to work. Mm -hmm. And some of them have even received an organ or a piece of an organ from their parents. Wow. What percent, do you know what percentage of folks actually receive uh, tissue or organs from their parents? Um, I don't know the general statistics. Um, I have had, gosh, I've had, five or six patients in the last two years who have received an organ from one of their parents. The the number is much greater for individuals receiving organs from family members in general, but, Mm -hmm. and that's kidney and liver that these folks have received. Right. Wow. And so now if you're working with adult children and they are largely often dependent on their parents, then what, what starts to happen when the parent gets older, like goes into older adulthood, and then there's your patient is the adult child then? What, are, what do the dynamics kind of look like then? That's when it usually gets a little messy. It's pretty confusing for them to transition roles. Um, there's a lot of emotional, uh, the, a sense of indebtedness or that they owe them something, but then that comes with guilt and shame if they're not able to be as involved in their parents' care as they'd like to be. There's a lot of variability depending on the siblings involved, but I tend to see a much closer bond between the aging parent and the adult child who had struggled with chronic illness throughout their Mm -hmm. life. Um, so it, the burden of responsibility often falls on that individual, even if they're not the best able to provide Mm -hmm. that care. And then there's this dynamic that there's an indebtedness, but then a physical limitation. I imagine even financial limitations. A lot of these folks have often been dependent on their parents for financial support or supplementing things along the way. Um, They also have a lot of physical limitations, not just in terms of strength and being able to transfer a parent, but they have, depending on the chronic illness, they have their own energy and illnesses, energy issues and illnesses that interfere with how they're feeling each day. Mm -hmm. They also are immunosuppressed, so they're not 
necessarily the ones who should be taking their parents to the doctor or the hospital or in lots of cases, even to the grocery store. And then they also have cognitive limitations from the immunosuppressant medications. So they don't always have the best memory to remember the appointments or help their parents manage the medications. Okay. Now just define immunosuppressed yeah, for so everyone. Anytime someone receives an organ, they have to take anti-rejection or immunosuppressant medications for the rest of their lives so that their body doesn't reject the organ. And those medications have a lot of side effects, but the primary one is that it's completely suppressing a person's immune system. So they're much more susceptible to catching bugs, colds, viruses, bacterial infections, anything and everything that's out there. For the rest of their life. For the rest of their life. And then it's also much more difficult for them to fight that off. And so they just have to really adapt their lifestyle the best they can to avoid being in high germ infected areas. Okay. So now, now this is a family then where the adult child has received care from their now aging parent and um, in this role of indebtedness or in this dynamic of indebtedness and probably a strong desire to give back all that's been given. And then with all these limitations, like high risk of infections, even the smallest little infection could have a big impact because the person's on immunosuppressant medication that decreases their ability to fight off germs or viruses. And then the medication also provide, uh, has a side effect of cognitive side effects. So lack of memory deficit or what kinds of? Usually mild memory deficits and attention or concentration problems. A lot of times patients will describe it as like a brain fog where they're just not thinking as clearly as mm-hmm. they be, which is very frustrating because it, in some cases, doesn't really go away. It varies depending on how much medication they're taking, which can vary depending on their health Mm -hmm. throughout the long term after they've received the organ. Okay. So then if they're foggy and their parent and the aging parent needs assistance with medications or managing appointments or managing finances or driving, it's going to get messy and maybe they're not the best candidate to help with that. And then there's guilt and shame because my aging parent did all of this for me and now it's my turn and then I can't because of my medical problems. Yes. Even in cases where the patient who's received an organ is pretty healthy and has their own family, just the burden of their own medical appointments, how frequent they are and managing their own medications on top of a family really limits their ability to then also help their parent. Yeah. Wow. So that's pretty sticky. So then what happens then psychologically for the, for the adult child, the transplant recipient, like how do they tend to cope with that or kind of navigate those waters with these role transitions? Yeah. Unfortunately, they tend to experience, like I mentioned, a lot of guilt and shame, which mm-hmm. can contribute to depression or anxiety related to being limited in restricted in their own bodies um, because mentally they want to be there and emotionally they have a strong connection with their parents. 
So it results in a lot of mood issues and difficulty just navigating boundaries within the family. I see a lot of folks who tend to overextend themselves and then end up sicker medically and emotionally because they're afraid to say no, or they feel like they're letting them down if they don't take them to that appointment, but then they end up subjecting themselves to more risks. And then there's the risk of the emotional risk of failing your loved one in a time of need when your loved one's always been there for you. And there are very messy dynamics with siblings who often the siblings who didn't have a chronic illness or need an organ transplant often feel like the, my patients have always been treated extra special. And so then they have this resentment that, they end up putting the burden of caregiving on the patient who's dealt with chronic illness their whole life because they feel like, well, you always had mom's special attention, so you can take care of her now. Mm-hmm. And I imagine there's a familiarity with the healthcare system that maybe other siblings don't have and um, with medication management that other siblings don't have with insurance claims, all of all of that language that's kind of acquired with exposure and experience. Which those kinds of things I suggest, you know, or I highlight as these are the things you can help with that don't put you at risk. You can help call the insurance company or call the pharmacy because you're already knowledgeable about that. And maybe don't go take them to the hospital. (laughs) Let your brother do that. So now one of the things that stood out to me as you were talking was this, experience that the person living with the transplant, my idea is that they might have had limitations in their life for so long and then um, get to a point where you have a transplant and there's a wish that like this expectation that life is going to be very different. And then after the transplant, you realize that now you're immunosuppressed and you're going to be on all these medications that are going to limit you still. And isn't that, why would I get an organ anyway? And now my life is like still limited. And then moving into a role of caregiving. And then there are limitations that on life that come with caregiving. It's high demand potentially. And I just think of all of the, just the challenge. I don't know if people describe the transplant experience of kind of being hostage to their body, that their body is like holding this, this organ ransom and, um, and they're kind of being held hostage and like kind of caught. I wonder, I wonder what that's like. I often end up wording it like their body betrays them. No matter what they do, no matter, you know, the people who are as healthy as possible and take their medications, they still, some of them experience rejection later on years after the transplant. Mm -hmm. And so it often feels pretty hopeless and helpless. And so it's just a different version, like post-transplant is just a different version of being limited in a lot of ways. Yeah. So some of your work to help manage expectations of what comes after the transplant then? Mm -hmm. That's a lot of it. And it's not very meaningful to really try and manage those expectations before transplant because people are in what I always call survival mode and it doesn't matter. I mean, you can tell them the worst possible side effects and it doesn't matter because 
it's life or death. So yeah. Okay. Sure. I'll have stomach distress for the rest of my life. That's fine. It's better than dying. And then on the other side of it, when, you know, it's months after and they should be feeling better, but they're still nauseous every morning when they take their medications and every evening when they take them again, it really starts to wear on them. And that's where the issues with just not feeling well some days come in and it's really unpredictable and it's hard for even the aging parents, but other family members to understand, well, why aren't you feeling well today? You got a transplant, you should be all better, right? Mm-hmm. And so speaking to what you mentioned in terms of having the knowledge of the healthcare system and the competency to navigate it, this is how the responsibility often falls on the transplanted patient coupled with the lack of understanding of why aren't you all better? I have um, a, one patient who cracks me up because he refers to it, his life as the longest trimester, first <laughs> trimester ever, because he's always nauseous and it's been years. And so his a lot morning of people, sickness. Yeah. Yes. And a lot of people have lost patients with him. Like, Oh, you're always feeling ill. Mm-hmm. And the reality is it really interferes with his day-to-day functioning. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking of the, you know, the term allostatic load, just the level of stress just is compounding on top of them. I, um, I just imagine there are high rates of depression and anxiety and it's so important to have somebody in your role to help navigate all of these complicated dynamics. And, and I just, I just can't, imagine that the rates of depression and anxiety are very high. Very high. And a lot of times the aging parent resists the role change as well. I mean, obviously as they're losing their independence, they're going to resist that, but it's so unfamiliar to have that adult child be in charge that there's resistance on both ends. So as we were preparing for this interview, you had mentioned something to me that was really profound, which was that um, you see a lot of families where the aging parent might have the same chronic illness as the adult child that you're working with. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So in lots of, in many cases, there are diseases of the kidneys or the heart that run in families. I mean, with all of the organs, but I predominantly see it with the heart and kidneys. And sometimes the aging parent had received a transplant themselves. Sometimes one of the parents had the disease and either received a transplant and died, like did not survive it, or never made it to transplant. So there's these underlying complicated histories of the disease that um, obviously influence people's fears as they age. And when the aging parent has a similar disease and starts to decline, it can really invoke a lot more fear for the adult children who can logically, realistically assume that that will be coming to them one day as well. Their fate. Their fate. So a lot of the time in our work is about how to 
live your life fully now before those issues start to limit your ability to live. And a lot of talk about exploring how fear can run away with you if you don't get some control over it Um, and how your story might be different. It might not affect you in the same way. Mm -hmm. So you can't know that it will be that way. But there are a lot of issues, even with some of the heart diseases that run in families where the aging parent is dying of the disease, the adult child has received a transplant, and then their children have just been diagnosed with the same condition. Oh my God, the tragedy, the legacy of illness in families and the tragedy that families have to live with. Oof. And so you're, you're helping folks navigate the fear, create a life worth living. And then it also sounds like trying to find reasonable hope in the midst of a lot of yeah. um, illness and decline and loss. Really difficult when someone has already received a transplant because it's known that that is going, your life is shortened. And so then, especially with kidneys, if they want to pursue another transplant and how they might manage that, depending on their parents' status. And this is, I'm talking about diseases other than dementia. Then when you add dementia in, it's really difficult to help people manage that fear because they've already struggled with the physical limitations of their body. And then if their mind goes... That's the ultimate. Is there a high rate of dementia in folks that have transplants? Yes, there is. Um, there's a high rate of the more general cognitive impairment and then the long-term use of immunosuppressants and anti-rejection medications. And then all of the just general wear and tear that the body takes, mm-hmm. like, as a result of unmanaged high blood pressure or diabetes that comes on as a result of the immunosuppressant medications, like all of these factors just compound and generally really contribute to the loss of cognitive functioning. Yes. Patients age. Yeah. And then, uh, depression and anxiety, as we know, chronic depression, anxiety also increases the risk for dementia. And so does post-traumatic stress disorder. And so I, I wonder, you know, these folks are living with high levels of stress. So their um, cortisol levels are going to be high. And that has been shown to also correlate with dementia. I mean, Okay, so we're talking about a lot of doom and gloom and the cruel reality of what a lot of families living with life-threatening illnesses are living with. Now, I want to switch gears because, um, because you were talking about something really important, which is how to make a life worth living now and how to find meaning and hope in the life that you have. And so how do you do that then when families, legacies of illness in families and families are, are living with this cruel reality, how do you help them do that? How do you help them find meaning and hope? Well, I should also say it's not all doom and gloom because the individuals that survive these kinds of chronic illnesses are incredibly resilient and they generally tend 
after having a life-threatening experience of receiving an organ, generally have a very different perspective and outlook on life and appreciation for life that allows them to live more fully in each moment every day and appreciate the, the small things that many of us who are healthy take for granted. So it's definitely not all doom and gloom. It's just very complicated. And um, people that are living in families with a lot of chronic illness are really dealing with so much more than you ever think about. Um, So some of the things that can help are first and foremost, remembering that self-care is not selfish. And so I have this quote that I say to a lot of my patients who are having a hard time with taking care of themselves because they're worried about their aging parents. And it's not my quote, but I got it somewhere and I say it. It is, you're not actually required to set yourself on fire to keep others warm. Oh, say it again. That is good. (laughs) You're not actually required to set yourself on fire to keep others warm. That is really good. It's a good one. I don't know where I had found it, but I started using it and people hold that really resonates with them Mm. and helps them shift their perspective to what they're doing and how they might be over-functioning for a parent or whoever in the family and not taking care of themselves. So that's the one major take home. I can't emphasize enough. Um, Along with that is it's okay to say no and set boundaries and the aging parent typically is pretty understanding of that. Um, you don't have to say no to everything as we spoke about a little earlier. There are ways that you can be involved and support them, participate in caregiving without taking a major toll on your own health. Mm -hmm. People need a lot of help with that because, well, I understand it to be because they feel so indebted to their aging parent. And they care for them so deeply because they have such a strong bond. They often don't want anyone else to be caring for them because they don't trust them or they know their parent might be uncomfortable. But the reality is that if they would, and when they do have conversations with their parents um, about their own limitations, the aging parents are generally the most understanding because they've been there the whole way and fully understand the limitations. And so one question I often ask people when they're clearly overwhelmed and trying to navigate getting all the appointments in in a day and picking up the groceries and running the errands and doing everything, I'll ask them, is this what, if it's their mother, for example, is this what she would have wanted for you in your adult life? Is this why she devoted her life to caring for you and making sure that, you know, you stayed healthy and were able to flourish and thrive. And that's often a question that helps them just take a pause and think about it. Of course, you want to help your parent, but they wouldn't necessarily, if you asked them, they wouldn't necessarily want you to stop living your entire life to care for them. 
Or set yourself on fire to keep them Or set warm. yourself on fire. Yes. Um, so those are the main tips that I mm-hmm. really emphasize and come back to time and time again. The other or another tip that I have is that it's so important to ask for help. There are these patients that I work with, like we mentioned, are the ones who know how to access resources better than anyone. And they often find themselves not utilizing the resources available because they get so caught up in doing everything themselves. And a lot of people are afraid to ask for help, but I see it time and time again, when they do, the outcome is generally better. And that extends as far as making the decision to move an aging parent into an assisted living facility or a nursing facility where there are people available who understand the aging parents' needs and are reliably there to provide better care. Mm -hmm. So that goes along with some of the more difficult conversations I have with people about making those decisions. But people, as you know all too well, often don't understand don't take the time to sit back and think about how their parent might be better off in a facility like that because they might have better care or a healthier environment, a safer environment. So um, a lot of times it's focusing on asking for help and using resources, using that grocery delivery service or having someone come in and clean your parents' house instead of doing it yourself. Those little things that I then also usually follow with you're not abandoning them or disappointing them or letting them down. You're taking care of them. This is what caregiving looks like. It's not just doing everything yourself. Oh, I really like that because um, we're given messages about caregiving that are often very unreasonable. So um, in society, we're given these messages like, how could you move your aging parent into a long-term care community? How could you... Um, I would never, you know, people with the the sort of righteous indignation, like I would never do that. Or, um, and then they get into the throes of it and they're realizing, oh, my parent with dementia is wandering or my parent post-transplant has all of these health care needs and I have all these health care needs and I physically can't do it. And, um, and I think in society, we could do a better job given giving permission for lots of different styles of caregiving. So I really appreciate um, what you're, you're offering is that it's actually not denying care. It might actually be enhancing care. And what's the point if you have two people who are needing <laughs> care now because you're not prioritizing also your own health? Yeah. Were you going to share another one? Were you? Yeah, my last tip is I just can't emphasize enough how important it is to find support, to find other people who are navigating the same challenges mm-hmm. as each patient is. I have a support group that really is it's post-transplant recovery, but ultimately what it is, it's a group of individuals ranging from 45 to 65 who are transplant recipients managing their own health issues, managing their own families, and then dealing with their aging parents who 
have a whole range of their own health issues. And a lot of what they really take away is just knowing that they're not alone in having to make these decisions or not alone in feeling guilty for not being able to do as much as they'd like to for their parent. But that doesn't mean that you don't appreciate or love your parent or there are other ways you can show them that. Yeah. And and just the support group for just this unique population of folks who are, have been living with the chronic and life-threatening illness their whole life and potentially their whole parent's life as well. Just these legacies of illness and families and getting, finding your community, like finding your core group of people that are living a similar experience that you can relate to. Yeah. Okay. So let's go through your tips. So the first is self-care is not selfish. It's if you don't take care of yourself, you're not going to be there to take care of them, which directly connects to you do not have to set yourself on fire to keep others warm. And I would argue generally your aging parent wouldn't want you to do that. So it is okay to say no and set boundaries. And it is okay to ask for help and bring in other services, resources, individuals who can help you care for your aging parent and yourself. And it's important to find your own network of support of individuals who can relate to what you're struggling with. Wonderful. And then if somebody does all of these things, what's the general outcome? If they follow these tips and take care of themselves, they will ultimately find that they are healthier and happier and so are their parents. Dr. Schmidt, how do we know each other? You were my supervisor on internship. (laughs) My favorite supervisor. That late life depression group really set a great foundation for my work now. Oh, that makes me, that warms my heart. And I'm sure they would be so proud to know that. A few of our group members, we don't run that group anymore. A few of them have died, and, but they were together. The late life depression group for anybody who's interested was together for seven years. And it was a group of older men living with probably chronic depression, anxiety, and met twice a month for an hour and showed up on time in their seats, ready to work. And the work there was connecting with one another and finding deeper connection with each other. And, uh, and then, and then it had the benefit of reducing depression, anxiety, and it was a beautiful group. So I'm so glad that had a lasting impact because my group is basically structured just after that. Oh, that is so meaningful. That's so touching. Two years we've been meeting and we have a solid core group who really cares about each other now. All had very different illnesses, different organ transplants. And many of them started by saying, you know, I'm not a group person or I don't know, I don't want to be in a group with people who have had other organ transplants. And as it turns out, they can all connect regardless of their differences. And it's a really powerful group. Yeah. Well, bravo to you. You're offering such an important resource with that community or that group, because you're really creating a community of caring and connection and camaraderie. It's so important. Well, thank you so much for your time and all of your emotional and concrete resources. Great. You're welcome. Thank you.
And congratulations on your role and the good work that you're doing. I can't wait to learn more down the road. That's all for today. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Subscriptions and reviews help people to find this show. As always, the information shared in this episode is for educational purposes only and should not take the place of licensed medical or mental health care. I'll see you next week. Same time, same place. Lots of love to you and your family. Bye for now. Lena, do you think aging is scary? No. No? Why not? Because it makes us happy. Aging makes us happy? Yeah, I'm going to be bigger and taller.